Welcome to Jewish Boy Calls His Mother. I'm your host, Sadia, and this is my mother, Ima. Hey, Ima. Hey, my sweetest. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I went ahead and I took that audio reel of yours that was laying in my house for like the past, what, 50 years, I would say? 1960, <laughs> 1972. So that, that would be 50 years, actually, on the dot. Don't rub it in. <laughs> Whatever. No big deal. Uh, the audio reel that you had for your... Um, junior recital as soprano in Towson University, originally called Towson State College. Uh, I took the audio, I tried to fix it up as best I could, and I put it up on the YouTube channel. So in case anyone's interested, they can easily listen to it. Um, and you chose different artists. And these were artists that you felt were the most Pretty, I would say the most interesting, something that would grab attention to you and to the people that are listening to you. Um, what would you say your musical style is or your musical interest uh, is when it comes to these artists that you chose? Ooh. That was that was a bong out of uh that was certainly Left a part, yeah. bong. <laughs> yeah, no worries, it's fine. Uh, I I think I chose those. Um, particular composers because the music was pretty. I liked them. I also, I felt that also probably that you brought up a very interesting point that I um, probably had in the back of my mind was that my musical um, acumen was best shown through their pieces. Okay. Like my range and my, and the quality of my voice. But like I say, the main the main reason I chose those um, composers was because, like I said, like I enjoyed singing these uh, pieces. They were very, very, they're very pretty. Um, I think I chose them on my. I'm I'm trying to remember how I chose them. I chose them pretty much on my own. Um, of course, you know, I I showed them, you know, to my uh, voice teacher, and uh, she approved. And she also, I'm sure, I'm sure she gave her input about what she the pieces she felt would you know show off my uh, vocal talent yeah I mean I, actually, I it's a very interesting story behind that actually originally I was supposed to give that recital um, actually a month before oh wow and I scheduled it for Friday night and my accompanist was a different accompanist and when I told my mother when I had when I scheduled my recital for she says to me, Friday night, Shabbos. No, we weren't religious. I said, oh, Ma, come on, we're not religious. It's okay. Well, the day before I was supposed it was I was supposed to perform, I lost my voice totally. Oh, wow. Remember, I, I told you that um, every now and then, especially around early spring, which was when this recital was scheduled for, for some reason, I would get this horrible belt of laryngitis I went to a throat specialist and he said my entire glottis, the glottis is what we refer to as the vocal cords. And he said, my glottis, the back of my, he says my whole throat was just totally swollen. He doesn't know why. Looks like I might be allergic to something. And he told me what I have to do. He says, you can't talk at all, nothing for an entire week until you see me next week. Not even hello, nothing. You need to talk to somebody, you write it down. And to make matters worse, my accompanist calls me 
He goes, guess what? He goes, I was cleaning my apartment. And there was this big glass mirror that I had in my living room. I was wiping the space around it and the whole mirror fell off and broke and smashed on my hand. Oh, gosh. I'm going to the emergency room now. Oh, God. So the next day, I come into the library, and most of the music students used to enjoy being in the music section of the library. We would, you know, put on, you know, you put on, the, you put on records and you put on earphones, and you sit in the music section, you know, with your earphones, listening to some nice piece of music while you're, you know, doing other things. Maybe you're doing like a sociology assignment, whatever other assignment you have. And I come in and he's sitting there and his hand is all banded. Oh, gosh. <laughs> he plays piano and he's got no hand. I come in and I, get, and I have no voice. And the music students are looking at us and they know what happened and they are laughing hysterically. And I come, I sit next to him and he turns around. He looks at me. He goes, get away from me, you jinx. <laughs> You're the reason this is all happening. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I had to wait for an entire month. By that time, my original accompanist, his name was Bob, could not accompany me. He, um, it was the end of the year. He had to, he had to leave. He had to go away on, on something. It's like, you know, this is like all ready, um, like, Almost, it's like like days before the end of the year, of the school year. And so this time, so I got another accompanist, and he was really nice. He he um he stepped in, he picked up the ball. Very very gifted pianist. He could one of these guys who could play anything thrown in front of him. And this time I scheduled it for Thursday night. And this time everything came off well, and my whole family came. And this time it uh you know. Oh, it totally a shock practice. I love it. Yes. I love the shock practice <laughs> stories. Uh, so what was your family and your accompaniment and your teacher's reaction to the pieces? Very positive. Very, very positive. It was it was almost like it was it was almost like a um like a graduation ceremony of sorts. Okay. It was like a celebration. It came off very well. My voice teacher took a, a picture of me afterwards in my gown. I was wearing this beautiful long turquoise gown. I told you before it was the, the same gown I wore for Aunt Dan's wedding. I was the maid, yeah. I was the maid of honor for a wedding. Nice. It was this lovely long, you've seen pictures of it, very beautiful long turquoise gown, which I can't fit into now. No, nah, don't worry about it. It's fine. <laughs> so, so, size 10. <laughs> which I'm not anymore. But anyway. Oh, it's okay. So, uh, and uh, she took a very pretty picture of me. I forgot where it is. And um, like I said, the, the reaction was very, very positive. She was, my voice teacher thought it came off very beautifully. So, in fact, she, she said to me one time, she, one time she said to me that I should never stop singing. Mm -hmm. She says, you make a lot of people happy when you sing. She goes, you should never stop singing. Oh, that reminds me. Um, uh, so I was talking to somebody and we were talking about brushing teeth for some odd reason and and brushing teeth when we were kids and what our parents would do. And I told them about your hippopotamus song <laughs> to help me brush my teeth. And they th thought it was the most adorable, funniest thing ever. 
Um, because because it got it got you guys to open up your mouth. Yeah, I guess. so I could get in there and and brush the incisors and the and the what do they call them the, the molars the, teeth, and the, incisors. the molars whatever. Yeah, it was like it goes to hippopotamus smiles and says ah uh, hippopotamus smiles and says ah uh, I think that's what it is. I, I'm not it was sure. Hi, it's when the hippopotamus smiles. He says hi. <laughs> oh, that's how it is. That's what it was. Uh, yeah, because I, I was explaining it to them. Um, yeah. When I when I taught one time when you were a little boy, I took you to Baltimore Zoo, and we were by the pygmy hippos. Yeah. The pygmy hippos are cute. If anybody's ever seen them, they're they're a small species of hippopotamus. Oh wow! And they're really cute. They're small. They're little. I, I don't know how tall they stand. They don't stand that tall. And when the hippopotamus saw you, he opened up his mouth like this, like real wide. And so when you came home, you told everybody that the hippopotamus said hi. <laughs> <laughs> by the way, by the way, we can always hear you clinking the tea um, as an audio, just a side reference. Um, so what about preserving your vocal cords? If someone wants to like preserve their vocal cords, if they're practicing and whatnot, like, and how long should they practice? Okay. Voice really should not be practiced more than anywhere between a half an hour to 45 minutes I would say a day. Um, and I learned that the hard way when I was determined to learn my music and I was practicing two hours each day and I got laryngitis and my vocal teacher asked me, how did I get laryngitis? And I told her I was practicing two hours each day. She goes, you can't do that. <laughs> so it's only a half an hour to 45 minutes a day. Cause she, she explained to me how the goddess is so it's it's delicate, very delicate. It's not a, you know, it's not like a violin or something. As a matter of fact, it's interesting. You should mention something. I was, um, I forgot where I heard this. Some somebody, I think it was the violinist I was talking to. We were discussing basic rules for how long instruments, uh, or you know, could be practiced. And we said voice, no more than a half an hour to forty five minutes a day. Would you believe he said violin should be practiced no more than maybe two to three hours at the most? Because he said if you try to practice it any more than that, you can um, you can mess up your your wrists and your shoulders. Oh wow! I didn't realize that. Piano, however, we and you know the piano can be practiced eight hours a day, and I I've, I've done that. There had, when I was in college, there, there were occasions when we had um, in, in the music department for your performing arts, you didn't have formal written exams, of course, for final exams. You had to perform in front of a panel of faculty members that were that taught your instrument or that were or that you know were vocal teachers if you were in voice. And they were called juries. And you had to perform for them and you were evaluated. You were, you know, you were evaluated on um, how well you performed. So um, I remember around the time that I had juries for piano, I remember there were times I mean, wake up in the morning, you know, get my coffee, go over to the piano, put my coffee on the piano. And that's where I was for, well, I took a little break for maybe lunch or something. But that's where I was from nine to five. I mean, I did that for college for architecture. Like I was in I was in class from 
well, not just class, but like studio from I would say 10 in the morning to one o'clock at night. Oh um, on, sun- on Sundays, on Sundays, I would, I would get in at 10, leave at one. Ooh. And throughout the week, I would put in maybe like a 10, 11, maybe 12 hour day. But that, wow. that came in with a lot of practice because growing up at, at, and going to Jew- Jewish schools, you know, it's kind it's kind of a more of like you have to wake up, be in school by 730 and you don't leave till about 815 at night mm-hmm. and you're in ninth grade. And that was an easy school because Yosef and Yehuda, they went to ones that didn't end till 10 o'clock at night and started at six o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. So you really get being in Jewish private schools, you really get the practice of working hard, like legit working hard. Um you know, I remember actually as a as a kid, you know, I'd hear some some other students. I'm not gonna tilt my horn and say, "Oh, not me," but like I heard them, so it kind of affected me. Where they go to the rabbi and being like, "Well, I don't want to daven. I don't want to go go pray. I don't want to, you know, learn this. Anymore. I don't want to." And it's like, and they all looked at them and be like, "You can want whatever you want, but you have to do this." Mm-hmm. You know, prayer and wanting are two different things. You know, it's an obligation that you have to do. So go ahead and complain all you want. It's not going to, you're not going to get you anywhere. And like that mentality really like affected me where it's like, it doesn't matter what I want. It matters what I need to do. And that level of discipline. Um, But it's always kind of odd because like, I know you put in so much work into college and I put a lot of work into my college experience in in academic wise mm-hmm. but like for you like i would think if i was an outsider watching you in college i would expect you to be you know some concert pianist or concert vocalist <laughs> by now that's like retired with like tons of awards just just coming from the the audio that i heard was beautiful and hearing other stories from your from your sisters and seeing you over the years as my mother, like you have so much talent. In a way, I feel like it's it's like a waste. Like you you like, what was the effort for? What did you accomplish out of that when it came to, you know, looking at your life? If, you know, you put so much effort into this college degree of 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 academia. Um. Sometimes I think about that and I think about the way that I used my knowledge. And, you know, success isn't always measured in um, fame or money or awards. Success can also be measured in how you've used your talents on a personal level with your own family. Like when your father a couple of times mentioned to me about where have you sung? Where have you used your talents? And I tell him, I have sung for the most amazing audiences, all 10 of them. <laughs> I When I raised the, you know, using my vocal technique to sing to you children, uh, the songs I made up for you, the stories I made up for you. Yeah. Um, the um, 
my students, my piano, my voice students, my violin students. And a lot of the a lot of the parents, my a lot of the parents of the children I've taught have told me what a wonderful experience it's been for their children because in the from world you don't get occasionally you get, you know, people who have degrees in music and really know what they're doing, but it's it's not the norm. And a lot of parents have told me it's been really wonderful for their kids to be able to study with somebody who has actual training in music. I mean, I'm te- I'm, I teach my students how to pick out nigunim on the violin or pick out the notes to nigunim on the piano. Um, I have a lot of from girls who, from girls like, you know, they get together, they sing. A lot of the Jew- girl, girls on um, Jewish schools have their own choirs and their own performance groups. And these girls are really happy to be able to study with someone who can teach them real singing technique instead of them just, you know, trying to sing and trying to sound as best they can. Yeah, it's, well, that's what I've noticed what was so great with the Balchuva movement. It brought in a, a kosher filter of great academic works and practices and methods. Um, because no, no offense to a lot of from Yidden, but they they kind of do it this way. They handle, to give an example, you know, what are Jews good at, right? Debating and <laughs> talking and arguing. Well, what was psychology? I was... um. I was thinking about psychology because um, whenever I've met like a young Jewish uh, person, particularly girls, seems to be very psychology to be very popular for girls, like young Jewish girls. And I'll say, "Oh, what are you getting your degree in?" They'll say psychology, and I'll say to them, "Oh, you mean Jewish studies?" <laughs> so yeah, okay. So 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 adding to that point, by the way, so Jews do really good in debate. The question is why. The the answer is because they don't follow the standard rules of debate. You know, there's regulations, there's concepts, there's there's methods of understanding. And I think that, you know, it's it's a back and forth of like how much, how many of these rules are that important? You know, how many of these, these, these musical rules and musical methods, how much is that important? You know? And the 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 my my main point I try to say is a lot of the from methods is very unconventional and it's a double-edged sword it helps us and hurts us at the same time you know i i've seen a, a lot of from you doing great at business but the social cues are just out the window you know that's a jewish thing because i'm sure there are I'm, I'm sure there are many of non-jews that you know when it comes to social cues have the same challenges but well, I mean, okay, fine. So let me let me reframe this then. I think I th- and I I guess I guess you're right at this point. I, I'm trying. What I'm trying to say is something that like I feel a lot of Yid- a Yidden want to say, and I'm trying to put this in, into the right terms and right words. It's like. Our method doesn't work or it doesn't work as well as a non-Jewish method. And we should practice non-Jewish methods more than our Jewish methods. 
you know, the, the Rebbe, well, a couple of things. You know, the Rebbe, um, I wanted to go back a little bit. Okay, okay, okay. When I was in Crown Heights, and that was when that particular year, 1974, was when a whole onslaught, a whole migration of Bali Chuva hit Crown Heights. Like it was never seen before in history. You're talking about hundreds of Bali Chuva hitting that neighborhood all at the same time that September of 74. And the Rebbe at a Fabringen was talking about this entire huge population of Bali Chuva. And he said that these Bali Chuva that are coming in now are going to bring talents and skills to the from community that are really going to help us a lot. The, um, what you said about, like just now about, um, uh, you know, I guess you want to call it like social skills, whatever. The Rebbe addressed that a few times. The Rebbe um, told a story that one of the bringers about a man who came to him and he wanted his son to leave yeshiva and go to, you know, regular college. In those days, they're the only the only Jewish college around was Yeshiva University, and that was it. And or right. Um, well, and that's even near Israel in those days was not considered a um, did not have like a college offer a college degree in those days. Oh, really? Went so later, and so the so the so the man um, so the Rebbe was telling the story about well this story of course happened during I think nineteen fifties, and so the Rebbe asked the man why do you want your son to leave yeshiva and go to college? He goes because I want him to be a mensch. Interesting. And the Rebbe said, Torah. He says. Studying Torah is supposed to make you a mensch. And that's when the Rebbe like, um, gave some very constructive criticism yeah. to his Hasidim. He said that we, that our, his Hasidim said, we need to learn, you, you really have to learn manners. And he mentioned it. He says, you bump into someone, say, excuse me. Yeah. He said, say, please, say, Thank you," he says. "The Torah talks about Hakaras the Torah, and I remember at the time when the Rebbe said this that there was a problem with that. That there would be gatherings. I saw one gathering in particular at an airport, um, where a whole group uh, from Crown Heights of men in particular were seeing off these these ten families, the Shaluchim. They were going to go to um, to set up a Jewish community. In Svas, I think it was Svas, 10 families. And they were very happy and they were running to see these families off and to dance and to sing. And as I was about to go into the section of the airport where they were going to see them off, I see this not obviously non-religious Jewish woman. I mean, she, she seemed like she was Jewish coming out with her family from this area and she's brushing herself and she goes, oh, they're like animals. They're like animals. And what had happened was these whole group of Hasidic men had just run into the section of the airport and almost mowed people down. Yeah. No excuse me, no stepping to the side, none of that. And um, one of the flight attendants there, as a matter of fact, got very mad at them and yelled at them for yeah. basically for their rowdiness. So I was teaching seventh grade at Bayes Rifka at the time. And I told my seventh grade class at Bayes Rifka about this. And how upsetting it was to see these people so agitated 
with the rowdy behavior of these Hasidic men. And we were discussing what the Rebbe said. As a matter of fact, there was one time in Baltimore, I was standing on the sidewalk on Shabbos with some friends of mine, and we were talking, obviously all from people. And it didn't occur to me, there was, there was this non-religious Jewish couple that was walking down on the sidewalk, and we were so busy talking, we didn't even notice them. And the husband yelled at us and said, what's the matter with you people? Can't you get out of the way? And I, it occurred to me, I said, you know, this man was right. We should have noticed him. We should have moved to the side. So would you believe a couple years later, mm -hmm. it was the same couple. And mm -hmm. this time I was with almost the same group of friends and we're talking and I see this couple. I saw them coming from a distance. And as they come towards us, I called out to my friends. I said, people, let's all move to the side and let this couple by. And we did. We all stood to the side, went onto the grass and we let them by. And the man looked at us and said to us, good Shabbos. And I said, good Shabbos, back to him, even though he obviously was not religious. But I, I think what I find so frustrating is that 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 is very true. And I, I have had stories like that happen to me. But the observation I've noticed is they can be really rude to Jews and get away with it. You try doing that to some other person, you know, that's not Jewish. And look at that, what the reaction they're going to give you. And they're going to just yell back at you. And there's going to be a giant fist fight. And I feel like the frustrating thing I have is that like people, this is something that I guess is just a natural subconscious anti-Semitism, I would think, and self-hatred or just the way the energy people that are Jewish bring down is that like you can go ahead and beat me and that's fine. You know, how about what's your problem with yelling at me? You know, imagine, imagine, imagine it wasn't you. He said that too. Imagine it was somebody else, some other people in Crown Heights. He said that too. Imagine what would happen to him if he if he got mad and yelled at them, like like he did to you. You bring up something interesting. Um, I one time on Shabbos, I was cutting through the back of this apartment complex, and this woman. I guess, you know, obviously getting out of the car, she looked, you know, she seemed to be very Jewish, but not religious. And she yelled at me about what's the matter with you? Don't you know this is trespassing? Why are you cutting through this property? So I got irritated with her and I said, you know, lady, you don't have to act so anti-Semitic. And she goes, I am not anti-Semitic, I'm Jewish. And she was yelling at me. And something occurred to me. What I should have said with her to her was, excuse me, lady, but if I were some six foot guy, with tattoos, <laughs> would you be talking like that to me? And I think the reason that is is because they know we're safe. Yeah, they, they know we're not yeah. about to get violent. We're not going to get violent. <laughs> we're not going to freak out. We're not. We're not going to beat you down. We're, e we're easy. You know, we're, we're an easy, easy target. Yeah. Easy target because you know what? We we. It's like it's not even it's it's not even in our nature almost to like have a confrontation on that on that level. Well, well, you know something. Whoops! You're good. I'm. I could still see you and hear you. Okay, I'm going switching to low power mode. Can we still? Okay. So anyway, you're fine. Um, I tell you that I think more Jews though are speaking up. I know I'm one of these Jews who I speak up. We had yeah. and it was something in Sukkot. I was inside the Sukkot one Sukkot in Baltimore, and we had some non-Jewish neighbors that were talking about some Jewish people in a very very, very nasty, nasty, anti-Semitic way. I came out of the sukkah. 
I walked over to them and I said, you know something? I said, there's no reason to talk about Jews like that. We are all God's children. And what did you say to that? Um, it was a man. Well, what did he say and, to that? And uh, they said, oh, um, well, you know, we, uh, you know, they said uh, that they didn't really mean to come off like that. Yada, yada. Yeah, well, your, yeah, yeah. Your father actually got irritated with me because I came out and spoke to them. Really? Like that. And I said, yeah. And I said, your father. That's surprising. I said, I am not about to sit back and let anybody badmouth us as Jews and let them get away with it. I'm sorry. That, I'm going to speak up. That's surprising because, like, that's not what Tati would do. You know? Like that's like that's kind of odd because I would I always imagined him a kind of guy like I remember driving down the street where it was like Cholamoid. We were coming back from like Sugarloaf Mountain or some Civil War memorial and this little bratty kids were just chucking rocks at our van. And he told told us to get out and we got out and he just chased them with the van and then he stopped, <laughs> pulled out, ran after them and the kids freaked out and they started screaming. They were like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And he just like yelled at them and whatnot. So like that's not, like there's other stories also with like plenty of other stuff Tati did with like you know it was <laughs> one, another one another story that we'll get back on track. Uh, it was snowing and it was um, oh, I remember that oh, I remember that yes it was snowing and this person parked their car du like double parked their car and then this and then our neighbor couldn't get through. So, so Tati was still getting out of his car from work, whatnot, and he told the lady to like back up, like like back up, let the guy get through. And the lady got really upset and said, "How dare you talk to me? How dare you do anything?" And yelled and screamed at him. And then she's like, she said she was gonna get her mother, and her mother comes out and yells and screams at him, and then slaps him. No, and then, oh my gosh. Yes. And he's like, you know, and then he, he 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 got really mad at them, yelled and said a few things and then told you their license number, expecting you to write it down. You thought it was some secret code that he because he used to work for state higher administration. She's like, you asked it when he came up. She's like, what? What was that? You're like, Tanya's like that. That was their license number. There wasn't anything else that was there. And we called he called the cops. But he, he didn't press charges in the end. Well, he didn't they, press charges. Well, they they ran. They they got in the car and they drove off. I remember. Yeah, but he got the he got their license number. Yeah. So uh, they able they were able to find them. Uh -huh. Um. And then he just I remember I remember standing right next to him, and the cop was like, "You can press charges if you want to," and he's like, "You know what? I I don't want to. I just I just want just tell, give them a warning and tell them to watch themselves." He's like, he mm -hmm. wasn't like he wasn't the kind of person, honestly, no matter how much he had that like gumption, um, he wasn't the kind of guy that was vindictive, you know. And again, that's just like all the all the men in my life I've ever been exposed to up until I started going to work and hanging out with people, you know, that weren't Jewish. All the men there, they weren't ever vindictive. They weren't ever like they, they had tempers for sure. Not going to lie. I've I've been with around Jewish men that had tempers, but like, I don't know. I've just I've never been exposed to it. I'm not saying that it's 100 percent or it's real or it's. It's just from my experience. That's all I can say. You know? But, um, oh. I found, I found, no, I found, yeah, something, a temper, temper doesn't get you anywhere. No. It really doesn't. The few times in my life, not a few times, but yeah, when I was <laughs> younger, I lost my temper a lot. And, yeah. It didn't do anything for me. As a matter of fact, it, um, 
it actually was counterproductive. It prevented me from really getting, I guess, like what I want or something like that. I found um, the few times I lost my temper with people, they just they just shut me off. Yeah. They weren't about to deal with me. Yeah. I think I remember one time I was kind of frustrated with like seeing all the passiveness in my life. And I was a teenager, so I was just angry anyways. <laughs> um, and I had to call... I had to call some kind of hotline for some information. And the lady was just being just being absent and just not like letting me get through. So I wasn't even like an impulse. Like I just, just like decided like I on a conscious level is like, let's see if I get mad at her. Let's see what happens. <laughs> so I like raised my voice and came a little more irate and she just hung up on me. <laughs> and that was like the lesson I learned. Like, okay, just it just doesn't work. That's not because in my mind, I'm like, I need to get from point A to point B. What is the quickest, most efficient way? You know? And if like, if having a temper and yelling works, then I will do that. If it doesn't work, then I will stop and do that. Like, I'll find another method. Like, I was just curious. And like, what was it, I guess, a moment that you kind of regret from a time you lost your temper? And we have like six minutes left. <laughs> when, I hit you, when I hit you kids. Yeah. <laughs> When I got mad and hit you guys, whenever whenever I got mad and hit you guys, and looking back now, there was a you know better way that I could have you know the to deal with it. That, so I mean, could, and also um, as as a teacher, um, oh, as a piano teacher, when I first started teaching, giving piano lessons, yeah, I lost my temper a couple times with some students, and um, I found that you know they, it wasn't helping them. They they didn't. Oh, look who's come to join us. Um, <laughs> They never, um, you know, they didn't come back. And I said, whoops, I said, this is, uh, I have to, and, you know, try, try to, I developed a technique where if they were having trouble playing or something, try to help them, try to find a method to help them to play the notes better rather than, you know, yell or something like that, or, you know, put them down or anything because you're not, you know it's kind of productive you're not you're not helping them to uh <clears throat> you're not helping them to play better or to do better by losing your temper in fact when um when you lose your temper with people people go into fight or flight mode yeah so like no one's able to really solve anything yeah at that point no i i, I understand that i i mean because uh, i guess I, I used to have, I definitely used to have a temper back in the day where it's like, it, it was more of a lack of impulse control more than anything else and a feeling of reason to exist. Um, And it's also, I guess, being surrounded by people ha that had their own issues they weren't resolving. Um, Because it's oh, yeah. like, you, you, as an adult that's not around children or teenagers, you think to yourself like, oh, I have a good handle over my emotions. And everything is fine. Then you spend time with teenagers and children and you're like, oh, this is why I was constantly ragey and annoyed because I had these horrible little human beings, you know, <laughs> saying and doing these things. And I had no like control over my life. You know, I couldn't just walk away. I, I couldn't be an adult and be like, well, I'm done with this conversation. I could just walk away and never see you ever again, and life would be fine. <laughs> nope. You have to be in the same room with them for four hours. Oh, and your time off, you have to be around them as well. 
Oh, and, and, and the other time off where you're not around them, there's other people that are going to be annoying you and going to be like, it's just the whole thing. And like, you really don't find peace until like, I would say 25. Cause then you're done yeah, with you're college, right. done with everything else. You're finally, you're like, you're, you finally found yourself to a, to a point and then you could finally start working on living in peace because up until that point, you're in situations you have no control over. And even though nowadays you, there are moments that you aren't in control, but there are moments that you really aren't in control when you're younger. There's also something too, they found about the human brain that there's a part of human brain, which is, um, which dictates like judgment and self-control. And as you get older, the part of that brain becomes more developed, mm. especially, you know, towards um, after 25 and on that was, you know, reading this article about this. And the, the sad thing is though, I remember even, um, you know, when I was younger and did have a temper and did get angry easily, um, I would read these articles by these rabbis that were talking about angers like a vote of Zara mm -hmm. and, um, how, you know, getting angry um, doesn't help to solve the situation. And that being angry is like you saying, well, why isn't this going the way I want it to go? Yeah. And that's denying, you know, the fact that God is in charge. But, you know, you read these articles and you read these things and you read these things and you hear these speeches. And for some reason, you can't really inculcate it at that time. Yep. It's like, it's, it doesn't, it's like, it doesn't become part of you, that anger, that angry part of you, that temper part of you. Somehow you just can't shake it until, like you say, you get a little older, 25, you get your 30s, 35. And as you get older, you know, you do get more of a hold of the situation because you realize that me being angry is going to be totally counterproductive. It's not going to solve anything. It's better for me to stay calm and to try to work this through. You you also know, don't, that, that's going to solve the situation. I think you also don't care about life as much. <laughs> I think I think as a teenager, you care about it so much where it's like every little bit of drama fills your electrolytes. You're talking about this, doing this. And early 20s, you do, you're still doing it. But like by the time you hit 30, you're like, maybe just some of my family and close friends. Maybe <laughs> I don't need to even care about them. Maybe as long as my, you know, Daladamas, like my six foot radius is there then it's fine like i don't need to like i could just walk away like i think louis ck the comedian has a bit where he's like the weird thing i have as an adult where like you could just like walk you could rent a car and just walk away from it and just call the company and they'll just pick it up like you don't have to do anything you know and it's that like realization that you really don't have to do anything at all um all right, so that was a wrap. Um, Ima, I love you very much. I hope you have a wonderful weekend and a wonderful Shabbos. Thank and you, honey. You too. I, God willing, will talk to you soon. Okay, sweetheart. Love you. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Jewish Boy Calls His Mother. Please send us feedback and comments on our Facebook page and like and subscribe on YouTube. I know I would like it, and my mother would too.